Welcome to the Bethany Covenant Church Sermon Podcast. We are a multi-generational community in Berlin, Connecticut. Our services are held Sundays at 9.30 a.m., and you can find out more about us at www.bethanycovenant.org. So I've been thinking lately about turning points, turning points in our lives that sometimes might be literal turning points, like when our GPS or phone in our cars says, in a quarter mile, turn right. There are other turning points in our lives that might come as unexpected surprises, like maybe when that same GPS says, for some reason we can't discern, when it's safe to do so, take a U-turn. Like, what is, what is going on? Where do I need to head? We know that the uh, turning points that arise in our lives sometimes are things we anticipate, and sometimes they're unexpected. Sometimes they're pleasant developments, and sometimes they're unwelcome surprises. We also know that every good story requires turning points. A story is good if the plot has twists and turns and things go in unexpected directions. We know stories are good not just because they kind of slowly plot along in the same line, but because there are developments. There are conflicts that arise or that begin to be resolved. There are relationships that blossom into something new. There are discoveries that are made. And we can think of the Bible as a story as the story of God and the people God created and whom God loves. And if we look at that story, we see that it's a story full of turning points, crammed with turning points, book after book in the Bible, chapter after chapter. We see that things were moving along in one direction when suddenly there was a turn, there was an inflection. Things headed a different direction. Sometimes we see that this was a direction, uh, not a positive turning point, because very often the people of God turned away from him and decided to do their own thing and ended up paying the very natural consequences. But there are other times in Scripture where we see that God intercepted human history, acted within it to bring about something brand new, to bring about a great change in the way things had been headed. And we see God acting in a way to bring about a turning point in the life of a certain person or a family or a nation or even, at times, the entire world. For the next seven weeks, we are going to be diving into some of these turning points in Scripture, these times when things had been moving along in one direction, but God then did something else. But God acted and things changed. More than 60 times in the Old and New Testament, we encounter this two-word phrase, but God. And it always signals a turning point. Today, we're going to look at two examples when human beings came to the end of their own abilities, but God then enabled to do those things that only God can do. We've all had those moments, I'm sure, where we're faced with a challenge, with a task, and we realize it's just beyond us. Maybe we have a deadline approaching. We realize it's just humanly impossible for one person to do this. Or there's something we have to get done, maybe a project to complete, a, uh, uh, something to build or construct or plan. We say, I just don't have the skills for this. And we all know that feeling of relief when someone comes along who is able and willing 
to help us out. It's a turning point and a welcome one. In the book of Genesis, one of the key figures is Joseph, one of the 12 sons of Jacob. We're told in Genesis 37 that when Joseph was a young man of 17, he was tending his family's flocks with his brothers, and he came home one day to bring his father a bad report about his brothers. We don't know what it was about, but we just know that, that he tattled on them. Now, I remember recently at Vacation Bible Camp, Jesse, our children's director, was telling this story to the kids, and she asked the question, so how do you think they felt about that? And every kid knew exactly what it feels like to be squealed on. This was strike one between Joseph and his brothers. But it gets worse, because actually in the very next verse, we discover that Jacob, their father, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him in his old age. And to show that love, he had given Joseph an ornate robe. Maybe you've heard of Joseph's many-colored coat. Joseph was dad's favorite, and dad didn't try to hide it. Strike two. And then literally two verses later, we read that Joseph had a dream in which he was superior to all his brothers. And then when he told this dream to his brothers, interesting choice, his brothers hated, the, hated him all the more. So this was strike three. This was just more than the brothers could tolerate. And so while it was certainly not justified, it was completely understandable that when the brothers had the opportunity, while they were all, all out tending flocks in a remote place, that the brothers sold Joseph into slavery. There was a traveling caravan that came through from a foreign land. The brothers sold Joseph into slavery, then faked his death so they would have an explanation to bring back to Jacob, their father. The story goes on to say that Joseph was then resold into the household of an Egyptian officer named Potiphar. And we're told that because the Lord was with Joseph, he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. We learn that from the day Joseph was put in charge of his master's household and property, the Lord began to bless Potiphar's household for Joseph's sake. And then the plot turns when Joseph rejects the advances of Potiphar's wife, is wrongly accused by her of sexual assault, and is then thrown into prison. There, Joseph is enabled by God to correctly interpret the dreams of two fellow prisoners, both of whom had served Pharaoh, the ruler of all Egypt. One of those fellow prisoners goes on to be reinstated to Pharaoh's service, and when Pharaoh a long time later, has dreams that he can't understand, this former cellmate of Joseph recommends that Pharaoh send for him. Now, that's quite a bit of background to the Joseph story, but it's important because we're going to be looking at his life for this week and next week, and we need to understand how it is exactly that he came to be in front of Pharaoh himself. So let's pick up the story in Genesis 41, beginning in verse 9. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh was once angry with his servants, and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Each of us had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. Now a young Hebrew was there, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams, and he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream. And things turned out exactly as, inter as he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position, 
and the other man was impaled. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph said to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Joseph tells Pharaoh, now you've asked me to do something. Full disclosure, I can't do it, but God can. It's in this simple yet eloquent but God declaration that Joseph points to God as the only one who's the hope for Pharaoh, the only one who can give Pharaoh what he needs, who can give him that turning point that he's looking for in his stuck story. And it's quite remarkable that here Joseph is brought before Pharaoh himself, given every opportunity to look good and shine in the moment, and instead he gives all the credit to God. The story unfolds to reveal that God indeed provided to Joseph the proper interpretations of the dreams, which he then delivered to Pharaoh. And Joseph not only told Pharaoh that his dreams were a sign of famine coming down the road for Egypt, but he also wisely advised Pharaoh how best to prepare for this coming calamity. And then we read beginning in Genesis 41, 37, that the plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. So Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. And this is where we'll leave Joseph for this week. But let's turn now to a New Testament example of a time when someone came to the end of their own power, but God did what only God can do. And this is the story that was just read a bit earlier, the story of Peter and John coming into the temple courts and encountering a man who, because of his disability, wasn't allowed in to worship God, but had to sit outside at the courtyard entrance and beg for money so he could survive. We read in Acts 3 that Peter said to him, silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk, and he went into the temple courts, praising God as he jumped and walked. And the account goes on to describe how the people that were there witnessing this miracle recognized the man as the one they'd always seen begging by the gate. And so they came running with awe and wondering to see more about what was going on. And when Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us? as if by our own power or godliness, we had made this man walk. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. 
It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. And so just like Joseph did, Peter was given an opportunity to steal the spotlight, to make himself look good, to make people actually come to a place of awe about him. But just like Joseph, he didn't do it. And instead, he gave the glory to God. Joseph and Peter knew the limits of their own power, and they understood the limitlessness of God's power. They knew full well that there were things only God could do. And they understood that if they themselves ended up somehow being able to do it, it was only because God's power was at work through them. Even when it looked like they had incredible power and ability, they gave all the credit to God. Why stare at us as if we're anything special, says Peter. We can't do this, but God can. This attitude and these actions reflect the humility, the tone, and the spirit of godly worship that David exhibited when he wrote Psalm 29 that was read earlier. Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord, in other words, give him the credit, the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. The Lord gives strength to his people and blesses his people with peace. So this morning, I'd like to invite each of us to consider three questions. First, what is it that we know we can't do, but believe that God actually can do? And then secondly, as we think about that, are we actually willing to let God then do those things that only God can do? And then when he does, are we willing to give God all the glory, all the credit? I recently came across a quote that said that worry is a conversation you have with yourself about things you cannot change. Prayer is a conversation you have with God about things he can change. Now, I don't think that's a complete definition of prayer, but I love this distinction between our worrying and our prayerfulness. I believe that when we do worry, we reveal that we might not yet fully believe or fully trust that at the end of the extent of our own abilities, there may lie but God moments for each of us. Joseph and Peter knew where their abilities ended and where God's power began. And so did King David. We see this throughout the Psalms, including here from Psalm 18, where David writes, I love you, Lord, my strength. Listen for how many times David points to God's power to do alone what God can do. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my disaster, 
but the Lord was my support. You, Lord, keep my lamp burning. My God turns my darkness into light. With your help, I can advance against a troop. With my God, I can scale a wall. It is God who arms me with strength and keeps my way secure. You make your saving help my shield, and your right hand sustains me. Your help has made me great. You provide a broad path for my feet so that my ankles do not give way. Therefore, I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing the praises of your name. David sings here that when he looks back and recognizes that beyond his own ability, God had reached down and empowered him to do things in his own life that he couldn't possibly have done, that David's only natural response is to glorify God and to sing his praises. Now, I need to be honest with you this morning. There will be times, very likely, I can say almost with certainty, that we, we in our prayers, will cry out to God for a but God moment. There are times when our spirits will cry out to God, but God, can't you please? But God, won't you please? And we won't get the answers we're hoping for. And those are hard moments. Those are hard moments when we call out, cry out for God to intervene and act. And God doesn't seem to answer, or at least in the way we hope. As we'll see in the weeks ahead, most of the times, most of the times that these but God moments appear in Scripture, they come in unexpected times, unexpected ways, unexpected places, and often to unexpected people. We'll see that there's really no formula for compelling the God of the universe to do those things we would like God to do. And even when we trust God, there will be moments when we cry out for a but God intervention and simply need to wait. As we read the full story of Scripture, we'll become increasingly convinced that when it comes to God's power and work and intervention in our lives and in our stories, we will be wise to expect the unexpected. And we'll discover that we'll never be on firmer ground than when we trust that as God brings turning points into our lives and stories, our stories will always take a turn for the better. Please join me in prayer. Loving, powerful, trustworthy God, we thank and we praise you this morning for who you are and for what you alone can do. God, we ask that you would strengthen our faith when it's rattled by unexpected and unwelcome twists and turns in our lives. God, teach us to be people who pray even more than we worry. Help us to be more and more comfortable when we reach the end of ourselves, knowing that it is then that we can look to you as the God who knows us, who loves us, and who has power not only 
beyond our own power, but beyond our imagining. God, we ask and pray all this in the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.